Well, good morning to you all. It's, it's fun to see some, uh, some familiar faces that I haven't seen in quite a while. <clears throat> and uh, to have a little bit longer passing of the peace is kind of fun to get to greet each other. Uh, so welcome. If you haven't been here in a while, we're happy to have you back. And if you haven't been here ever, we're happy to have you for today. And, uh, <clears throat> and I have to embarrass Emily Boyd and, and tell you that Emily is here back there in the back. And <clears throat> Emily moved off to Oregon if, if two years ago, three years ago, two years ago, and, and uh, she's back visiting. So Emily, thanks for coming to join us this morning for worship. So good to see you. Um, just a little, little icing on the cake of, of uh, reunions. So that's all fun. Uh, we began last week a journey together, as it were, in a sermon series, a journey to kind of trace some of the story that leads up in the scriptures to the day of Pentecost, which is, in a sense, kind of the, the beginning, uh, kind of the, I think I guess I call it the opening day, sort of, of the church as we know it. Um, and so we're tracing some of the story that leads up to it, and it's really just the story of the world, to put it in simple terms, and it's a story that we probably don't know as well as we should know and be very familiar with it. But to know the story, as I said last week, you really have to know the author, And so, last week, I offered to you an embarrassingly brief introduction to the author of the story, and we considered a bit of the attributes of God, and we could obviously, certainly could and should at some point spend uh, an extended sermon series even just preaching on the doctrine of God. Not going to do that at this point, but, but last week, very briefly, and then today, another brief introduction to some of the major players in the story, namely you and me. Uh, This Genesis 1, verse 24 and following is the account of the sixth day of creation. And it's the day when God's creative efforts reach their best and most important uh, part. So Genesis 1, beginning in verse 24. And God said... Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to every To everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, 
the sixth day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we once again, as we do every week, come to you and ask that you would be at work among us. Let this not just be reading and thinking about some old text that uh, means nothing to us except for its creativity, but let us see in our hearts and in our minds that this is your very word and that it's not a dead word. It's a very live word. It is your spoken word that your Holy Spirit even uses now to convict and persuade and to teach. Would you unleash your Holy Spirit among us today and convince us of your glorious truth of the grace of your gospel in Jesus with these words. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. Over the past 10 years or so, a very unique consumer technology business, I guess you could call it, has um, kind of come on the scene. It's really kind of exploded on the scene, I guess you could say. And that is home DNA testing for the purpose of tracing out your ancestry. 23andMe, Ancestry.com. I think those are the two major players, maybe. There are others as well. And estimates that I've been able to see say that somewhere in the ballpark of 30 to 40 million people worldwide at this point have now received the test kit that's sent in the mail to you and I guess you swab some saliva out of your mouth. Maybe it's probably not as bad as a COVID test. And you send that in. And eventually you receive a report, I understand, that tells you um, your, where your family origins came from, where your family line began. Fascinating. I understand it also has the, the chance, possibility of telling you of possible health risks that you could face. And I'm certain, in fact, I know from some of the reports that I read, that it also can tell you some family secrets that you'd probably prefer not to know. Some people have actually learned in taking these tests that they're, they're actually not blood relatives with the people that they grew up with. That could be kind of shocking, I suppose. And some folks in, in California even learned that they're related to a serial killer. That's creepy. I'm sure that some of you have taken those tests, and I hope that you've not learned such family secrets. But of course, the reason why these things are so popular is because people long to know from which they came. People want to know where is their place. People want to know who are their people. We all kind of want to know that. And I imagine some of you have taken the test. I'd be curious to know what you found out. If you're as old as I am, you might remember back in the 1970s, Alex Haley wrote that uh, novel, Roots. I guess it's a historical novel. I'm not quite sure what he called it. Alex Haley is, uh, was a man of African descent, and he ev evidently studied his own family lineage all the way back, purportedly, to the village in Africa from whence came his ancestor through the slave trade to this country and then the development of his family line um, through that, it was made into a television miniseries, and I can remember in the late 70s as a kid, gathering with my family and watching with rapt attention all the hours of the miniseries of Roots. It was fascinating. And I suppose that, that 
that even the rising popularity nowadays of personality profiles indicates our curiosity of where we came from and who we are. One person writing about the Enneagram, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is it Enneagram or Enneagram? Whatever you'll call it, I don't know. But one person writing about that said this, they said, more and more I'm convinced that the paramount question plaguing humanity is a question of identity. Who am I? This is the fundamental question of our human experience. It's the one that compels us to search for meaning. Now, I expect that you know that. We, we all long in some, some ways to search for meaning and, and identity. And that question of identity is, is compelling many in our society today not to search for meaning, but actually to declare meaning. I identify as fill in the blank. That's terminology that is, I mean, it's new to me in recent years. I don't remember growing up ever hearing anybody ever say, I identify as whatever they want to fill in the blank with. And it's a fascinating thing to see. And and frankly, many Christians are very unsettled by this. I am at times. Because it seems to be destabilizing society as we know it. And it is. But at the same time, there's something that's very hopeful and exciting about this development, too, because it's actually proof of what Blaise Pascal is famously noted as having said some 300 years ago, the oft-quoted words, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. How true that is. People are grasping for identities. People are are desperate to find some place to root their existence. People long for some explanation about their meaning in life, and they will never find it apart from Genesis chapter 1. John Calvin um, said it this way. He, He wrote, No one ever attains a true knowledge of themselves until they have previously contemplated the face of God and then come down after such contemplation to look into themselves. Now, when you look into yourself, look also into God's explanation of yourself in Genesis chapter 1. Last week, we very briefly contemplated the face of God. This week, we briefly contemplate ourselves, and to do so, we have to look at Genesis chapter 1. Now, five days of creation have led us up to this point, which is the best and the most important part of God's work. The fact is, you, we, are the pinnacle of creation. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're, if you're not a believer in Scripture and in the gospel that it proclaims, that statement that, that the human race is the pinnacle of God's creation, that statement is probably really disappointing to you. Because, you know, the fact is, as fascinating as they are, human beings are so often a great disappointment, are we not? I mean, we, we all disappoint each other. We disappoint ourselves. There's so much disappointment involved in being a human being. 
And if you're not a believer, to state that, that human beings, the human race is the pinnacle of God's creation is probably pretty disappointing to you. But you have to also explain that part. Why are human beings disappointing to you? And in order to do that, inevitably, you end up back in this same place. And so what does it mean to be the pinnacle of God's creation? Well, it means, for one, that you're designed for a title. You're designed for a title, and that title is Image of God. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, for the record, that that term man is used to refer to the human race. Male and female, he created them. And that's what that term means as we read through this element of Scripture. And the redundancy of, of made in his image and after his likeness, the redundancy that that sounds like that is, is there, I think, simply to express the intensity of what's happening. God's creation has reached its best and its most important element. Now, whether you believe the gospel or not, you are created in, made in the image of God. You're made after his likeness. Even if you're not a Christian, if you're a human being, you're made after his likeness. So notice the pattern of what comes before verse 26 and verses 24 and 25. As we read that, there should have been a a term, a phrase there that kept ringing in your ears because it's pretty important in Genesis chapter 1, according to their kinds. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and so on and so forth according to their kinds, five times according to their kinds. And in the days of creation previous to this one, if you were to go back and read those, you would see the same. As God created the vegetation and the plants according to their kinds, and as God created the the birds of the air and the creatures of the sea all according to their kinds, and God reflected on each of them and said, this is good. But then you come to verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness according to our kind. There's a great distinction here. And so in Psalm 8, which you voiced with your own words earlier in the liturgy this morning, in Psalm 8, when when the liturgist, when David there asks of God, what is man that you're mindful of him? The answer is right here. The image of God. That's what man is. That's why God is mindful of of him. That's why God is mindful of you. And in that title, the image of God, there's both humility and there's dignity. There's humility and there's dignity. There's humility in the sense that you are just an image. You're an image of a thing. You're not the thing itself. And that's important to make note of. So Moses and the Israelites, as Moses is is receiving this revelation from God and writing these things down in the wilderness as they travel. Moses and the Israelites, they lived in a world of images. Not digital images, but physical images. And so the kings of that day, the pharaohs of that day, in order to assert their rule over their vast kingdoms, which they tried as hard as they could to expand bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, 
They couldn't be in all those places at once. And so in order to assert their rule over their kingdoms, they would place their images, their statues, in different places around their kingdom. And the purpose of that was to remind their subjects who's in charge. And so God is communicating to Moses in the language of the day. Moses, I've made all of mankind, male and female, after my image. In fact, in my image. You are my image. Moses, you're not me, but you are an image of me. And wherever you go in this world, my kingdom shall be known. Now, for all of us, this is really important to recognize that we're just an image. There's humility in this title. We're just an image of God. Especially the wealthy among us and the educated among us and the connected among us, it's vital for us to recognize that you're only an image. That's all you are. And not only that, but you're an image that's made from dust. Some of these ancient images that the kings would make and set up in these, their cities and their places and their kingdom were made of gold or of silver or, or some precious material that would last a long time. Some of the more common images were made out of clay. Well, guess what? You're made out of clay. You're the, you're the image of dust that can break. In fact, Adam and Eve in the garden, as, as Perfect as they were, and without requirement of redemption at this point, they were made from the clay. They were made from the dust of the earth. They were able to break, and they did. You too are made from the dust. And what that means for us is that no human being is indispensable. None. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. It doesn't matter what you have doesn't matter how many people know of you. LeBron James is arguably one of the best, maybe the best. No, he's not. I'm in Dallas. I can't say that anymore. Luca is the best. But LeBron James is known to be the best NBA basketball player of the past, I don't know, 20 years. He's made of dust, and he will fade, and there's already one who's better than he is. And amen. <laughs> I heard an amen. Thank you, brother. You also are made of dust. You are, you are not indispensable. You are only an image. That's all that you are. There's humility in the title. But there's also dignity too, right? You are an image, but you're an image of God. You're an image of the only one true God. You were not made according to their kind, as all the rest of creation was, but you were made according to God's kind, and so, again, in Moses' day, only the kings of men could claim such importance. That was the tradition of the day. That was the culture of the day. Only the kings could claim to be so important. In fact, the kings, as they established their statues, their images across their kingdom, were declaring that they themselves were deity. They were calling themselves God. And the rest of the folks, the common folks of their societies were only existing for the gratification and for the help of the elite, the Pharaoh types. Therefore, you can understand why there was slavery. You can understand why the Israelites eventually, after a few decades in, in Egypt, 
where they had found shelter. Eventually, they became slaves because, well, they weren't Egyptians, and they certainly weren't pharaohs, and so they became slaves. They were just the common folks. And, and when the elites consider that they are God and the rest of the folks are just folks made for their own gratification, then you can understand why slavery begins to exist. You can understand why, why chattel slavery develops in countries and societies around the world, including our own. You can understand why prostitution becomes a thing, because women are just for the gratification of men in this worldview. You can understand why pornography develops. Pornography exists because of this idea, because some are more important than others. The rest of them, especially women, only exist for the gratification of the rest. Therefore, pornography. And when you engage in pornography, you're asserting that you're God and those people are only for your gratification. That's what it is. And you can understand how trafficking, human trafficking develops. Same thing. This stuff is going on today because people in their broken and sinful hearts believe that they are more significant than those. This is how these things develop. But the title, Image of God, says to all that, no. Every human being has dignity with this title. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is or your lack thereof. It doesn't matter what your accomplishments are or your lack thereof. It does not matter what your social status is or your lack thereof. You have dignity because of the title that you have. And so when our, when our black brothers and sisters in Christ, when they celebrate Juneteenth, which is next Saturday, June 19th, here in Texas, when our black brothers and sisters in Christ remember and celebrate that in 1865, on June 19 of that year, the, the news of the Emancipation Proclamation finally reached the state of Texas, declaring that those who had been enslaved are now free, when our black brothers and sisters six days from now celebrate that, every Christian should honor it. Every one of us. I don't care what your political persuasion is. That has nothing to do with it. Every Christian should honor that because it's simply a reclaiming of the dignity of the title that we've been given. The image of God. Now, that reality of that title actually reshapes, of course, how we look at ourselves and how we look at other people. James, in his letter, James chapter 3, took a stab at it when he said, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men and women who have been made in God's likeness. And James' application of that was this. Brothers and sisters, that should not be. Simplest application in the Bible. You were designed for a title. It's a title of humility. It's a title of dignity. You also were designed with a command to work. To be the pinnacle of creation means that you are commanded by God to work. And by that, the Bible doesn't just mean to get a summer job, although that can be a good thing. It doesn't mean just to find a good career, although that can be a good thing too. It doesn't even mean to go out and earn a paycheck, although paychecks can be helpful. you got to pay the bills. That's not what this is about. 
as the image of God, you have a job to do, and it's actually part of your identity. It's a very important part of your identity. So verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over it all. Okay, five commands God gives to work. Five commands. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Now, do you remember the Tower of Babel? I referred to it a few weeks ago. It's important to remember that because the Tower of Babel, if you recall my explanation of what happened there, it was a failure to launch. Do you remember that? How God's image bearers descending from Noah, God had reminded Noah of his command to Adam and Eve. After the flood, he said to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. He he commanded Noah again. And the descendants of Noah, who ended up on the plains all together, speaking one language, refused to do the work they'd been commanded to do. And so God came and scattered them with their languages and forced them to launch And then Pentecost actually redeemed that event. So you remember that? Now, this is your command to work. And the command still stands today. Each of these commands, of course, though, each of these five has been twisted in this broken world, haven't they? So the first is be fruitful. In our society, if we we were to even use that term, we typically wouldn't necessarily use that term. But if we were, we'd probably be thinking in terms of the, the GDP, the gross domestic product. Right? If you're going to be fruitful, it means that you're going to go get a job or you're going to create jobs and you're going to produce fruit for the gross domestic product and elevate the economic status of malarkey. That's not what this is about. But our society has twisted it to be that. And then the multiply part, of course, has to do with children. And, and this too has been twisted. You know, on the one hand, living in a broken world with broken bodies and broken relationships, there are there are couples, husbands and wives, who desire to have children, but, but because of some hard providence in their lives, they simply are not able to biologically have children, and it's heartbreaking. On the other hand, our consumer world tells you that children are just an inconvenience. They're expensive, and they're difficult, and they're going to be trouble for you, and you're going to regret having children. Just consume other things. That's what our world tells you. That also is a lie. And so multiply gets twisted. And then fill the earth. Of course, that has to do with children as well and, and generations and such filling the earth. But, but our world preaches a different gospel to you. It says population control is, is primary. We, we don't want to create too many people because then we don't have room to do what we want to do. And that's crazy. There's so much room in this world. The whole population of the world could live in Texas and each have like half an acre or something like that. I'm not inviting that. But I'm just saying <laughs> And then there's subdue and have dominion. Those are problematic, aren't they? You know, in, in our world, those have a very negative connotation because we tend to think in terms of conquering powers subdue their weakering, weaker opponents and, and the bullies dominate the vulnerable. That's what subdue and dominion have to do with it. All these, these commands have been twisted because in a, in a fallen world, in a broken world, Self-serving, kingdom-building competition is what reigns. That's what's in all of our hearts, and that's what we're inclined to want to do. But that's not God's design. These five commands really kind of boil down to two categories. 
The first one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember the, the purpose of the images in the ancient world, that they're, they were spread about in order to, to spread the truth of who's in charge in a certain place. And certainly this command here implies that men and women are to pursue godly, God-honoring relationships that lead to families, to marriage and family and to children. But every family is different. Every family is different. There are you know, what I would call one-child families. For whatever reason, economic constraints or physical constraints or health constraints or whatever, there are one-child families. And then there are ten-child families, too. And there are actually, in God's providence, no child families. Again, for some of the hard providence, so maybe not being able to have children, adoption can be complicated, too. There are no child families at times. And there are families without marriage, single individuals who are not married. Those, too, are godly families, but in a different sort of context. But either way your command to work is still there. Because you're not commanded simply to reproduce. The animals are commanded to reproduce. That's not what you're commanded to do as the image bearers of God. You're actually commanded, you're called to fill the earth with image bearers. You're you're called to fill the earth with those who can be God's regal representatives all over his kingdom. And that's, of course, more than just biological. If you have children then you're to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. As we say, with each baptism. The greatest thing that you can possibly hand down to your children, if you have children, is not a financial inheritance. Money is, it's convenient, it's helpful, and it's a God-given blessing in so many ways. And if you're able to do that, you know, praise God. Be God-honoring with it. But money is not the, the primary thing you can pass down to your children. Rather, spiritual vitality and gospel faith, those are the things God calls for you to pass down to your children. Those are bearing fruit and multiplying and filling. And if by God's providence you don't have children, you still are called to be fruitful and multiply and fill. Maybe not genetically, biologically, but spiritually. You still can evangelize and disciple and proclaim and encourage and exhort your brothers and sisters. In fact, according to to Paul, the apostle, for some, it's actually better to not be married for this very purpose. Your work of multiplication might take different forms than simply genetic reproduction. You're called to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill. But you're also called to subdue the creation. You're called to have dominion over the creation. And and what that means simply is that you're called to actually be God's regal representatives. Now, not simply to be gardeners and farmers like Adam and Eve and to till the soil and to, to, to plow the rows and such. Some do that. But of course, in our society nowadays, in modern culture, there's less and less of that fewer and fewer, very few of us actually ever have any contact with the soil. But you're called to spread abroad in God's creation and to draw out of it all of its glorious potential that God has built into his creation. And that's by and large what the human race has done. And yet 
We, we continue to build our own kingdoms for our own satisfaction rather than doing it for the glory of God. But think about some of the biblical examples. Joseph, later in Genesis, if you remember the story of Joseph, who, who ended up being sold by his brothers, ended up in Egypt. Joseph subdued the earth. He expressed dominion, not by planting, but by effectively managing Egypt's resources as God's providence placed him in a position to do so. In order, in order to provide for that entire pagan society in the midst of a famine. That was Joseph. There's Daniel, the prophet, much later in the Old Testament, centuries later, who subdued the earth by learning the wisdom of the Babylonians, we're told. And by leading effectively as a politician for the sake of his people Israel in a pagan society during a time of great need. That's Daniel. And then there's, in the New Testament, to jump way forward to the book of Acts, do you remember the woman, Lydia, that Paul met along the way? Lydia subdued the earth by building a business. She was a dealer in purple cloth, we're told, and a significant character in her place. She subdued the earth as well, and so you too. Distinct from every other part of creation, your work, whatever it is, accomplishes what God intends. So think of it, the musicians, the architects, and the artists, they draw out the creativity and the beauty and the order and the function of God's design so that we can see how it works and enjoy it and glorify God with praise. The, the lawyer makes use of logic and reason and truth and seeks justice leveraging those things for the good of people who can't do it for themselves. That's a beauty for God's glory. The teacher, what's the teacher for? The teacher presses us into inquisitive investigation of all that God has made. That's what teaching is supposed to be. And insofar as teaching is that, it's glorifying to God and it has eternal value. The garbage collector the garbage collector is busy pushing back the fall by separating what's filthy from what's good. And God is glorified by that. So, a little career counseling here. You young folks, some of you are, are considering college, college majors, future careers that could be ahead of you. A couple of words for you. Let not financial prosperity be your goal. If you make money at some point in your life, if God grants that to you, praise be to God, use it generously. But let not money, let not financial gain be what drives you, but rather discern your gifts and your abilities and your opportunities and consider how it is that God is working in you and around you and for you and putting you in a position to Demonstrate his rule in this world. Search for that and pursue it, you young folks. On the other hand, some of you, like me, are a bit older. And you might wonder, how does, what does this have to do with me? How do, I, how do I deal with this? Well, it does do with you. On one hand, you might be distracted by your financial success. Maybe you've made it. Maybe you've gotten to that point where you, you've, you've made some money, you're making money, 
You've, you've succeeded in your career. People respect you, and, and the world looks at you and thinks that you're successful. That's fine. That's, that's good. You need to know and, and believe and recognize the fact that your dollars don't define you, and your position doesn't define you, and what other people think of you doesn't define you. Don't put too much stock in their respect of you. You're not as worthy of that as you think, although you do bear the image of God. And so your dollars don't define you. And on the other hand, some of you may be distracted by something else. You might be distracted by your self-perceived insignificance. You have strived and strived or striven. Is that the right word? Whichever one it is. You've done that. And you've pursued and pursued and you've worked hard and you've not quite gotten there. There, at least as the world defines there. And, and you kind of wonder, you know, maybe I'm just not, not going to get there. I'm, I'm, I perceive myself as being insignificant and you're distracted by that. Well, you need to recognize something different. You need to recognize that your anonymity does not limit what God has accomplished in your work. You too bear the image of God. You too are commanded to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and to express dominion over it. And God does that through your work, whatever the world may or may not think of you. Yes, your identity is tied up in your work, but it's not tied up in your career. Your God-given work is different than that. You were designed by God for a title and you are commanded by God to work for his kingdom, not yours. But you also are blessed by God. You're blessed with abundance. Notice the blessing of verse 28, and God blessed them. But then that blessing actually follows the command that's there. You have to skip down to verse 29 to see it. And God said, behold, I have given you every, and then I'm going to summarize the next four lines. I have given you everything you need to thrive in my world. I've given you everything that you need to thrive in my world. Now, as if there could be anything more to God's blessing of them than be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, there's more. I have given you everything that you need to thrive in my world. Now, in the ancient myths, the ancient religious myths, man was created typically by the so-called gods in order to provide food for the so-called gods. And so if you, you kind of investigate some of the world religions nowadays, still you see some of them involve that, bringing food and piling it onto the, the altar or whatever, and, and well, the gods don't tend to eat the food. It rots or people come and eat it themselves. But that's just kind of the way that the, the ancient myths would work. The gods would make people in order for the people to provide food for them. And in the same manner, these so-called gods also require that their followers provide their own righteousness. And that never works out. But the one true God desired to provide every abundance for his beloved created image bearer, and it was so. For five days, God had created and he saw that it was good. And on the sixth day, he created the pinnacle of creation, you and me, the human race, his image bearers, and he declared it all together to be what? Very good. 
And yet all this abundant blessing, I would say to you, is, is really only a precursor. It's a foreshadowing. It's a signpost of sorts for the abundant blessing that was yet to come. Now, you know that you are at risk for identity theft in this world, right? Your social security number, your bank account numbers, your passwords, all 53 of them that you have, and you've forgotten most of them. They're out there, and somebody's looking to steal them. Your identity is vulnerable for being stolen. But there's something much worse than that. Much, much worse. Because you listen to the sermons of our culture. Our culture preaches in your ear seven days a week. I only get to do it one day a week, but our culture does it all the time. And you listen to the sermons of our culture, and it wants to steal your identity. It wants for you to be stronger, prettier, faster, smarter, funnier. It wants for you to be more popular and more sociable and more marketable as a person. Our culture preaches to you that you need to be more consumeristic and more refined and and more suspicious of each other. Our culture preaches that to you. And our culture preaches to you that you need to be less generous because, you know, you need stuff too. And it It encourages you to be less discerning and less faithful. It preaches to you many things. And some of the things that it preaches to you are actually good things. But it preaches to you that those good things should be everything. And when they become everything, your identity has been stolen. It's gone. But the fact is, simply by being human... By being the pinnacle of creation, you have infinite value. Yet, at the same time, you're broken and you're sinful and you're divided from your maker and you are without hope in this world apart from the image of God. Now, by that I mean not the image of God that you bear, but by the abundance of the image of God that he provides for you in Christ. So the New Testament helps us a bit. As I wrap this up here, Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians, the second Corinthians for these words. He said, Jesus Christ is the image of God. And he wrote to the Colossians in chapter one, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. And the author of Hebrews chapter one wrote, Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, that doesn't necessarily help you, and and you probably know that. Yes, Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, he's the image of God and, and all of that. And that doesn't necessarily help you because Jesus, he is what he is, and you are what you are. And so God's story of redemption, you need to know, also goes like this. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and listen to this, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Being born in the likeness of men. 
the God of the universe who made you in the likeness of God came to be made in the likeness of you. It's a remarkable gospel story. The perfect image of God took on your image because you cannot repair what's broken. You can't. You can't provide the food for the idol and you can't provide your own righteousness for it either. In your image, he perfectly stood in your place so that in his image, you might stand before almighty God. And by faith in Jesus, you do. This is your role in the story. You were designed for a title. You were commanded to work. And you have been blessed by God with abundance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, we praise you that you have done this thing. We praise you that you have made us to be in your image that you have made us to be in, in your likeness, that you have given to us the, the responsibility, the nobility, the calling, and the joy of representing you in your creation. I pray, Father, that even today you would persuade us of the glory of that, of the dignity of that, of even the humility of that, and that we, because of those things, might do these things and carry out your work more effectively and not just to accomplish something before you, but to, to find meaning and significance and to recognize where our roots are grown, that we might see that we are your offspring, that we were made by you and for you, and in that there is glory and joy. And for these things, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.